Postal Publishing, The Going Postal Cast, and Christopher Chapman present Incarceration, the serialized weekly podcast performed by the author, Christopher Chapman. For more information, visit www.goingpostalpublishing.com or email him at goingpostalpublishing at gmail.com. This podcast is not suitable for children. It has violence, gore, and lots and lots of naughty words. If you can't handle that, go somewhere else. And now, on with the story, or whatever other crap I decide to come up with. Shh. Be very, very quiet. It's time for Incarceration, Episode 11. Uh, hello everyone, I am Christopher Chapman, and this is the Going Postal Cast Incarceration Episode 11. Whew, that means we're moving along quite well with incarceration, we're getting through this book very fast, possibly a little bit faster than I was anticipating, so we might have to do a couple of shorter episodes down the road, but for this week... We're actually going to have a larger episode than the last couple of weeks because of I just went through everything and I was kind of mapping out how I wanted to let everything fall and there is no real easy way of doing it. If I wanted to give you one chapter this week, it would be a 13-minute chapter and then next week would be a 20-minute chapter. So I figured, well, how about we just combine the two and then the following week it's basically the same thing. So we're going to do it like that, and we're going to see how that goes. So you're going to have over 30 minutes of actual story time today, and I am going to be your storyteller. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time chit-chatting, so I'm going to get right into the updates. There has not been a lot going on at Going Postal Publishing in the last week. Everything's starting to gear up for Daddy's Little Girl, so in the meantime... It's just writing and a little bit editing. The writing is that fantasy book I've been talking about, and I am now over 60,000 words into it, kind of trying to, now that I'm into the second half of it and with Christmas coming up, I'm trying to pick up the pace a little bit, even though I just don't really have the time to really put put out the like 3,000 words a day like I used to do. So I'm trying to get in around 1,700, 1,800, 1,900 words every stinking day, and see how that goes, and try to get done with the book sometime this month. I am aiming to do about 110 to 120,000 words in the novel, which is not the longest book in the world, but I have not uh, really been writing long novels. Unlike some writers who will sit there and write 150, 200,000 word novels and then chop most of them, what, end up, what ends up happening with me that ends up making the stories better that I've noticed is I write through and then I always come up with something to add to it that'll make it better as opposed to removing it. I think I write with a kind of a simplistic uh, style and then I usually think of, ooh, that'd be a great twist and I add it and then I add it throughout the book. And so the books end up usually, as I edit, becoming Somewhere every edit seems to get about a thousand to three thousand words longer, which I know if you follow all the different this is how you write uh, perspectives, 
I'm doing the opposite of it, and I've never understood that. I've tried to do it where I've written a 150,000-word uh, book, and then I sit there and I try to chop it down, and it just it never works for me. It, it, it never tightens as, as I would like, and it never the flow just seems to just disappear. So that just doesn't work for me. So I usually just, for some reason, just keep adding on. That's just how I do it. So this week's question comes to us from Tammy, and I haven't even seen the question yet. I had it hand handed to me by my girlfriend, so I'm going to open it up here, and let's see what it says. Okay, Tammy asks, what is Daddy's Little Girl about? I see the picture of the woman on the cover, and it looks like she has blood on her face. So I'm curious, what is the story about? You can tell me, I won't tell anyone else. Okay, well, interesting. All right, let me get rid of that. Okay, Tammy and the rest of you, I'm not, I can't really give away too much about the story, but thank you for asking. Um, Daddy's Little Girl, I'm going to just let you know, it's kind of, I think I've mentioned it before, it's basically under the premise of a woman scorn. Now, it follows a certain uh, event that happens in a young woman's life. Well, actually, she's not that young. She's a she's a mother. But something happens, and it kind of it spurns emotion, and it kind of creates a what-would-happen-if moment. And that's as much as I'm going to say right now. But as we get closer, I'm going to say more. And Sam, thank you for choosing that one. <laughs> um... She's looking at me weird. So anyway, I'm going to now get into the story, and we're going to have a couple more chapters of incarceration. So enjoy. Chapter 20. Jason Rangel had been out of Niagara for only one week. Already things were looking better. Chief of Police Randy Thompson had wondered what removing Jason from Niagara would mean. He'd wondered if the murders would continue, or if they'd disappear. Fortunately for him, and everybody else in Niagara, it was the latter. Besides the three missing police officers on the night of the Wrangell murders, there had been no sign that another killer was still at large. Randy knew that there had to be a second killer, an accomplice that helped Jason with the murders of his parents, but he had evidently skipped town. He made three police officers disappear, along with the Wrangell's bodies. But that was the last thing he did before riding off into the sunset. Randy poured over the evidence as he sat at his desk. Everything was here that he needed to put Jason away. Every note, every detail, and every photo from the multiple crime scenes were here. It was all like a giant puzzle being put together. Some of the pieces were motive. Jason had that. As it would turn out, the Wrangles had a rather large life insurance policy worth nearly $200,000. A larger piece of the puzzle was means. Jason certainly had that. Multiple people had come forward, telling detectives about a Jason Wrangle that had little control over his anger. The boy was a ticking time bomb. The last piece of the puzzle, the largest piece by far, and the only one missing, was the murder weapon. They had the scissors covered in blood. The DNA results on that blood were on the way. They'd arrive in the office at any moment. All of this information was vital for their case. Michael Dorr, 
Marinette County prosecutor was awaiting every possible detail. He was building up his case piece by piece, counting on Randy to deliver the information. He'd place Randy in charge of the case, and Randy wasn't about to let him down. This was the most important case in Niagara's history. Hell, this was probably the most important case in Marinette County history. The prosecuting attorney was treating it as such, giving him all the control he needed to get the job done. A knock at the door pulled Randy from his thoughts. Come in, Randy said. The door opened and Brad Collenbach entered, carrying a manila envelope tucked between his right elbow inside. That's it. This was the last piece of the puzzle, the item that he'd been waiting for. These were the DNA results on the scissors that he suspected that Jason had used to murder his parents. He couldn't wait. He needed that envelope. May I please have that? Randy asked, standing up and extending both hands. He thought that he must look like a beggar, wanting his next handout. He didn't really care what he looked like. All he cared about was getting those results and proving himself right. He snatched the envelope from Brad just as he extended it. I'm guessing that's the DNA results you've been waiting for, Brad said. No, these are the naked pictures of your mom that I've been waiting for, he said in his mind. He wanted to say that just to show Brad how stupid his question was. He wasn't going to do that, however. His job came with a certain amount of professionalism. He needed to keep up appearances and play the part whenever possible, even if it meant biting back when it came time to show somebody how stupid they really were. Yes, Brad, these are the DNA results, he said calmly. This will make or break the case. Open it then, Brad said. Do you mind if I have a look? Randy didn't answer him. He stared at the envelope in his hands, suddenly afraid to open it. He was afraid of what the results might be. What if he was wrong? What if the results came back and there was a different person involved? He didn't want to think of what might happen if that were true. He could imagine the media circus that would follow when he was forced to release Jason Rangel from the Marinette County Jail. Everybody that had counted on him to solve this case would all turn their backs on him. He would lose his job and would have to move far away to save himself from the shame. Are you going to open it? Brad asked impatiently. I'm getting to it, Randy snapped back. Brad took a step back, as if he'd just been shoved. Randy spoke again, more calmly this time. I'm opening it. He could sit there all day, debating what he should do. It wouldn't change a damn thing. The results within the envelope wouldn't change, whether he waited or not. He bent the metal clasps that held the envelope closed and slowly opened the flap. He slid his right hand inside and felt the paper between his fingers. His heart racing, he slowly lifted the single sheet of paper out. He held it against his chest for a few moments, taken in slow, deep breaths. When he knew he was prepared, he moved the paper in front of him. He looked down at the sheet, staring at the results. Randy Thompson wasn't exactly sure how DNA matching worked. All he knew was he'd supplied blood samples of both Mary and Gary Rangel. They were supposed to take the DNA from the blood and compare those results to the blood found on the scissors. What he was now looking at was the genetic fingerprint of all three samples. He never could make sense of any of this. Instead, he looked at the notes at the bottom of the page. There were two notes. One was in the same typeface as the rest of the report, while the other was handwritten. He read the type note first. It read, Sample 1, Gary Rangel, is a 97.9% .9 match to the DNA found in Sample 3, Scissors. Sample 2, Mary Rangel, 
is a 96.7% match to the DNA found in sample 3. Scissors. This is great, Randy thought, pumping his fists into the air with the report still clutched in his hand. He imagined that he looked like a quarterback that had just thrown the game-winning touchdown. Must be good, Brad said, a smile spreading on his face. 97.9, Randy said. That's a good percentage. That's for the dad. 96.7 on the mother. Both of their DNA was on the scissors. We have them. Even through the excitement of having Jason wrangle right where he wanted him, he remembered the handwritten note. He put the paper back in front of him, looking at the scrawl note below the results he'd already read. I need to speak to you. Please call me at 920-555-4578. Randy stared at the note for a long time. He didn't know what to make of it. Why did the DNA expert want to speak to him? Was there a problem with the tests? You'll have to excuse me, Randy said, motioning for Brad to leave. Boy, what an attitude change, Brad said. One second you're on cloud nine, and the next you're acting like the bloody world's coming to an end. I said get out. The look on Brad's face was awful. He looked terrified of him. Randy didn't care. Brad turned and left, leaving Randy all alone. He picked up the telephone from its cradle and dialed the number written on the note. He waited. One ring. Two rings. A woman answered on the third ring. DNA was how she answered. No name. No company's name. Just DNA. Hello. My name is Randy Thompson. I'm the chief of police in Niagara. You wanted to speak with me? Yes, the woman said, sounding excited. I've been expecting your call. You're calling in reference to the results I mailed you. Yes, I just got them five minutes ago, Randy said. Of course you did, she said. Otherwise you wouldn't have known how to contact me. I'm surprised you waited this long. What do you have for me? Randy asked. Well, as you can tell, I found two different DNA profiles in the sample you provided. I had to really work my magic to get samples of two DNA profiles because of the amount of blood on the blade that was mixed. We had nearly perfect matches to that of the deceased male and the deceased female. It's the not-so-perfect part that I'm worried about. How so? There's a third DNA profile on the weapon, mixed with both samples. I had a hell of a time with that. I had a difficult time distinguishing if there really was other DNA or if this was some kind of mutation. Mutation? Yes, she continued, sounding as if she were excited. To be perfectly honest, I ran three different samples at three different times. I'll use the male as an example. The first time I ran it, the results came back as slightly over 99% match. The second time, it came in at about 98.5. The third is what you're likely holding in your hand. The results were similar with the female. How is this important? Randy asked. How is this, uh, mutation going to affect my case? It shouldn't have any adverse effects on your case, she said. Results that high should easily help you distinguish guilt or innocence based on the circumstances. I just wanted to share this with you in case something changes. What would change? Randy asked. He didn't like where this was going. She had the idea in her head that something was happening. The blood is mutating into something else, she said. It's unlike anything I've ever seen before. This isn't something they teach you about in textbooks. The strangest thing is what it is turning into isn't quite human. 
it has many similar characteristics, yet there are differences. These are the differences that you might find between man and ape. They're similar, yet they're different species. Yet these seem to have characteristics all their own. They're not human, yet they're not ape. This is something else completely, something different. Why are you telling me all of this if it won't change my case? I'm going to make one thing very clear, she said stiffly. I do not want to go on the stand for this. I could be bad for your case, cause I'll do nothing but confuse the jury. I have to send these results to whatever attorney the suspect will have as well. Any good defense attorney will try to place doubt in the jury's minds by making their own assumptions as to what the 2% means. She paused. Don't call me to the stand unless you really need me. Do you understand? Yes, Randy said. But he was far from understanding what was going on. This case continued becoming stranger as every moment passed. What do you think this 2% means? I can't be certain, she said, but it's my opinion that the blood is somehow being transformed by this other DNA. It's as if it's being mutated into something else altogether. It's no different than what cancer cells do. But you're certain that the samples belong to Mary and Gary Wrangle? Yes. That's all I need to know, he said. Thank you. He paused, realizing that he didn't even know her name. Dr. Margaret Zucker, she said, then abruptly hung up. Randy hung up his phone, although he never realized he'd done so. His mind was preoccupied with all of the new information that he'd just been given. So, he had Jason for the murder of his parents. What about the Normans? Why wasn't their DNA on the scissors as well? Had he cleaned the scissors before killing his parents? Had there been a second weapon that the accomplice had used? His mind returned to asking if Jason had been telling the truth. It seemed too far-fetched to be possible. The blood on the weapon belonged to his parents. He'd admitted to stabbing the killer with the scissors. His mind kept searching through possible scenarios in which Jason could have sliced out his father's throat and justified that he was stabbing the killer. That didn't explain the mother, however. Maybe Jason really did have some form of mental instability in which he really did believe that he had stabbed a man that wasn't his father, all the while he was murdering his own parents. Although there were large enough holes in his theory that he could drive a truck through it, he still thought it wasn't out of the realm of possibility. And what did she mean about mutating blood? That seemed to be the biggest mystery of all. He found it difficult to wrap his mind around it when the woman who was supposed to know everything there was about this particular subject didn't know much at all. She didn't have any clue as to why the blood was mutating and becoming something different. How was he going to be able to carry on with this case when a defense attorney could see through all the holes in their case? He could go on with this, and he knew exactly why. Jason Rangel was never going to get a fair trial. The boy had already been labeled as a murderer, a label that would be difficult to remove. On top of that, because he was the primary suspect, he wasn't going to be able to claim one red cent of his parents' life insurance. That meant he had no money and wouldn't be able to pay for a lawyer on his own. That left one of two options. He would stick with the attorney that the court had appointed for him, who would likely give a half effort because he wasn't being properly compensated, or a good lawyer would step forward and take this case pro bono. He thought that the latter was highly unlikely. Most attorneys had one thing on their minds, money. If there was little to no chance of payment, there was little to no chance of an attorney taking the case unless there were points to prove. 
Losing a case wasn't exactly proving a point. He didn't have any regrets about putting Jason through this trial. He had killed his parents. With that one piece of evidence, he knew he could get him for all five murders. Chapter 21 Jason Rangel now knew what it was like to be in hell. Everything that led up to this point had been merely child's play. The Marinette County Jail was worse than anything he could have ever anticipated. The only thing that could be worse was whether or not prison was going to live up to its reputation. The guards weren't very good to him. He was one of two notorious murderers to be locked up in this jail in the past three years. They'd already dealt with Dale Gustafson, the man that had flipped out and shot three kids. After that, they weren't putting up with anybody's shit anymore. Mealtime was the worst. They allowed each of the inmates to go down to a small cafeteria to eat. Every meal seemed to bring some new form of torture. First of all, the food was terrible. The meals were overcooked, undercooked, or just not cooked. To make matters worse, he still hadn't had a meal in which there wasn't some form of extra topping on his food. He'd found spit, band-aids, fingernails and toenails, hair, and the all-important tooth. He still hadn't figured out who bothered to put a tooth in the miserable excuse the cooks called mashed potatoes. Even when there wasn't food in front of him, the abuse continued. It had been less than two weeks and he'd already been in five fights. He was only 17 years old, being tried as an adult. He was in jail with men that were in their 20s and 30s, who worked out nonstop because that was the only thing that they could do in jail. These men were exceptionally aggressive, beating on him constantly. They'd fight him with a purpose, but they'd also fight him for no reason at all. It didn't really matter. He'd fight them one-on-one, -on -one, but mostly he was outnumbered. He'd fought as many as four at one time, his anger being the only thing that kept him alive. Anger, and the guard that finally broke it up when the others were going in for the kill. He knew he should be thankful that he was still alive, but he wondered why he still wanted to be alive. His parents were dead, and he was being tried for their murders. If he weren't such a chicken shit, he would string himself up with his bedsheet. The problem was that he really was a chicken shit. He didn't want to die. He still held on to the small hope that this would all work itself out in the end. He still believed that the killer, that monster, would slip up somewhere and be taken into custody. He held on to that hope the way a five-year-old would hang on to their favorite stuffed bear. Despite his dimming hopes, he was still afraid of many things. The guards had nicknamed him the Shrieker. It seemed that every time it got dark in his room, his fear would take over. His pulse would quicken and his hands would shake. He would see the darkness as it closed in around him, squeezing him in a death grip. His chest tightened and every breath felt as if somebody was standing on his chest. Then, as if it couldn't get any worse, he would lose control of his whole body and scream out for help. His mind often reverted back to childhood when he would lie in his bed, his eyes focused on the closet door in his bedroom. During his earliest memories, he'd feared that something was hiding behind that door, waiting for him to fall asleep so it could slither out of the closet and eat him alive. He'd never screamed until one night when he was six years old. He was lying in bed, staring at the closet doors he'd done hundreds of times before. His eyes were becoming heavy as sleep approached. He fought the sleep. He couldn't allow himself to fall asleep. Yet, as it had happened many times before, he fell asleep. On this particular night, something happened. He stirred, 
Opening his eyes to the dark room, he couldn't figure out what had woken him. Was it mom or dad? No. A squeak had startled him, causing his chest to tighten. That sound was so familiar. It was the squeak of his closet door. Fear gripped him tight. Had he been right about the closet all along? He lifted his blankets, covering his entire body with the exception of a one-inch circle so he could look out and see what was happening. He thought that exposing just that small section would make him invisible to whatever was in that closet. In the mind of a six-year-old child, that logic seemed as real as the existence of Santa Claus. The squeak continued as the door swung outward, exposing the deep darkness of the closet within. He stared into the closet, expecting to see something emerging from the darkness. Then, as he'd expected, a form materialized before his eyes. There really was something in his closet. He screamed. He screamed so loud that his parents were in his room in less than ten seconds. The light came on, and two sets of arms wrapped themselves around him. Even with them there, he screamed. He heard his mother and father tell him over and over again that it was going to be all right, but he couldn't stop. Time passed. How much he couldn't be sure, but he'd stopped screaming. His mother and father were still surrounding him, their arms wrapped tightly around him. What's wrong? his mother asked. She had a deep look of concern on her face. Did you have a bad dream? his father added. Jason tried to speak, but found that he was unable. His voice wouldn't respond. Instead, he pointed towards the closet, which now sat wide open. His father looked to where he was pointing, comprehension developing on his face. He stood, releasing his hold of Jason, and walked to the closet. He looked inside, then grabbed hold of the door. He pushed it closed nearly all the way, then released. The door slowly opened again, giving that familiar squeak. Looks like your closet opened on its own, he said. One of us must have forgot to latch it. You poor boy, his mother said, running her fingers through his hair. Is that what scared you? Again, there were no words, just a nod. His father closed the door. It latched with an audible click. There, that'll take care of you for tonight, his father said, coming back towards him. He dropped down to one knee and looked Jason in the eye. I promise I'll get that joint oil tomorrow and see if there's anything I can do about it swinging on its own. Will that be okay? No, it's not, he wanted to yell. But even in his six-year-old mind, he knew when to leave something alone. He nodded, bringing a smile to his father's face. A smile soon spread on his mother as well. Good night, Jason, his father said, walking out of the room. Good night, my little boy his mother said, giving him a kiss on the forehead. She stood and walked out, flipping the switch on her way. He was alone in the dark once again. He stared at the closet door, waiting for it to open once more. He slid back under the covers, taking up the position he'd been in when his parents entered the room. All that was exposed of him was that single inch, which was now for breathing instead of looking. He fell asleep a few minutes later. The door stayed closed. Jason came out of his thoughts, finding that he'd been crying. He missed his parents more than anything. He'd gladly do the time without complaint if there were any hope of bringing them back. He knew, however, that there was no chance of that. They were dead and were never coming back. He had to live with that, as well as the fact that he would likely be staying behind bars for the remainder of his life.
The door to Jason's cell opened. Both he and his new roommate looked at the door. An officer entered, looking at Jason and not the roommate. You have visitors, he said, motioning for Jason to follow. Five minutes later, Jason was in a tiny room consisting of one chair. There was one light overhead and a piece of plexiglass that separated him from whoever was coming to see him. The door behind him had been locked, preventing him from leaving. A phone to the right was the only form of communication to whoever would appear across from him. Who was coming to see him? That seemed to be the biggest question. He didn't think that anybody would want to see him. Most everybody he knew thought that he was guilty of killing his parents, as well as the Normans. He was surprised when he saw David Grimes walk into view. His surprise rose to a new level when he saw Allison Rouse right behind him. She sat down in the chair on the other side of the glass as Dave stood directly behind her. Both carried expressions of pity. He could tell that they didn't want to see him this way. Well, I don't exactly want to be this way, he thought. Dave took the phone, placing it to his ear. Jason did the same. What's up? Dave asked in his familiar tone. Not too much, Jason answered, not knowing how he was supposed to answer. He'd never been in this position before, so he decided to wing it. Been catching up on some paperwork. Serious? Of course not, Jason said, half snapping. I sit on my bed all day, waiting for my three meals in bedtime. Have you been raked in the shower yet? Allison shot Dave a sharp look. As for Jason, all he could do was stare at Dave, not knowing how to answer a question like that. Part of him wanted to lash out in anger, but he knew better. He was fairly certain that they were being recorded, and an officer would be in to grab hold of him and take him back to his cell kicking and screaming. He couldn't do that yet. He wanted to speak to Allison first, who looked as beautiful as ever. Sorry to hurt your gay feelings, but I haven't been raped yet, Jason said. I tell you what, when I get out of here, we'll get together and have ourselves a little shower scene. I promise I'll remember to drop the soap. Dave's mouth comically dropped open. For the first time that Jason could remember, Dave stood speechless. It wouldn't last long. I know how this must sound, coming from your best friend and all, but I need to know if you did it. Allison looked at him with a sharp eye once more. You know that I didn't, Jason said. You'd actually think that I'd do that to my own parents? No, Dave said defensively. He held his hands out, palms towards Jason, as if he was blocking something. None of us know what to think. There are an awful lot of rumors flying around about what happened that night. They're saying that you saw some kind of monster. Is that true? Jason didn't know what to say. In a small town like Niagara, people had a tendency to make up stories that were so outlandish that few people could believe it after a while. This wasn't one of those cases. He really had seen a monster, or something like one. He knew, however, that Dave was unlikely to believe him. Yet, wasn't a friend supposed to give you the benefit of the doubt? Yes, no, I don't know, Jason said. His mind saw those eyes and teeth. I'm not sure what it was that I saw. All I know is that it seemed more animal than human. He spent the next three minutes describing to Dave what he'd seen that night, right down to the long, sharp nails and teeth. Dave looked horrified, but did not interrupt. Allison sat there quietly the whole while. When the story was finally over, Dave said, I can't believe it. I mean, wow. If what you're saying is true, I just don't know what to say. There was a long pause. 
His eyes looked upwards, never making eye contact with him. You know that what you're saying is a bunch of bullshit, right? Allison reached up, slamming her fist into Dave's shoulder. It didn't deter Dave from continuing. Come on, do you really expect to go into a courtroom with that as your defense? He asked. I'm Jason Wrangle, and I watch my family die at the hands of the Wolfman. It wasn't Wolfman, Jason interrupted. He wasn't half-wolf, and there wasn't hair growing everywhere. Dave looked at Jason with intensity. He moved forward, putting himself between Allison and the glass. It doesn't fucking matter whether or not this monster had hair or not, because I don't believe a goddamn word of it, Dave said in a flat, angry voice. I'm your best friend. Hell, right now, I'm probably your only friend. Despite that, I'm having a very difficult time believing what you're saying. Once upon a time, right up until the day your parents died, I would have beat the shit out of anybody that said you had the capability of hurting anybody. But after what I saw that day, what I saw you do to Nathan, I just don't know anymore. I saw the look on your face, the gleam in your eyes. You had murder in your eyes. You might have killed him if Mr. Craze hadn't stepped in when he did. I would have never... Would you? Can you be so certain? I saw what I saw, and I have to say that I didn't know the Jason Wrangle that beat the shit out of Nathan Paulson. A pause. I can't do this. I thought I could. I'm sorry. Dave turned and handed the phone to Allison. Through the receiver, Jason could still hear Dave talking. He spoke to Allison as he walked away. I have to go, he said. I'll be in the car. You talk to him all you want. The guy is crazy. He really does think that a monster killed his folks. With that, Dave Grimes was gone. Allison quickly put the phone to her ear and spoke. She looked upset, as if something Dave did was making matters worse. Is that true? Allison asked. You think that a monster really killed your parents? Here we go again, he thought. I don't know if it was a monster or not, Jason said. It was a really strange-looking man. At least, it must have been a man. He was like a beast, though. He killed my parents right in front of me. I tried escaping by stabbing him in the chest with scissors and then pushed him down the stairs. I heard his back break. Yet, I watched him get up. I ran until I came to the cop. While he was inside the house, checking out the scene, the killer, the fucking beast, scratched at the window trying to get in. I was scared as hell. Allison stared at him for a long time, maybe as long as two minutes. Her eyes seemed confused, as if she didn't know how to answer him. Her mouth opened on several occasions, only to close again right away. Finally, her face softened, becoming an expression of compassion instead. You're telling the truth, aren't you? She asked in a soft voice. I don't think that you killed your parents. I can tell. You have kind eyes. If you had killed them, your eyes would show it. Dave saw what he wanted to see. But I was also there that day. I saw what you did to Nathan, only after what he did to me. Oh, yeah? Why? She asked with a gentle smile. Why would you try to protect me? He felt his cheeks flush. He was certain that he was blushing. He wondered how he could answer. He looked around the small room, knowing how unlikely it would be that he ever got out. He knew that he could say whatever he wanted, and there was nothing she could do to stop him. He could tell her the truth, and the worst that could happen was she ignored him, dropped the phone, and walked away. How was that any worse than what was already happening? It wasn't. He built up his courage and spoke. 
choosing to go for broke. I did it because I've had a crush on you for a very long time, he said. She opened her mouth almost instantly to say something, but he spoke again before she had the chance. You're the most amazing person I've ever met. You're beautiful, smart, and everything else that any guy could ever want. I wanted you. I protected you from Nathan because he had no right hitting a woman. Nor could I allow him to do that to a girl that I like as much as you. Her mouth stayed open, but she didn't speak. When her mouth closed, she did something that he never would have expected. She smiled. He was so caught off guard that he thought he might have been dreaming the whole thing. Those are some of the sweetest things I've ever heard anybody say about me, she choked out, yet her smile never faded. I can tell that you're very sincere. Sure, I've heard other boys talk like that about me before, but they usually sound like some pop song and are only doing it to get in my pants. Look, you're saying it while you're in jail. You could be going to prison, yet you're saying these things. My God, it's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. You're over-exaggerating, Jason said. Thanks, though. You're making me feel better, even if it's only for a few seconds. Placing her hand against the glass between them, she exclaimed, No, I mean it every bit as much as you did. You're in no position to get into my pants. Yet you said those things. You beat up Nathan Paulson because he hit me. Most of my ex-boyfriends would have watched and then went for a teacher. You got involved because of your sincere feelings. You can't hide or fake something like that. I don't see how this helps anything, Jason said. I'm probably going to prison for the rest of my life. I'll do whatever I can, she said. I'll testify if I have to. Why? I tell you what. I want you to take me out on one date, she said. I'll wait a little while if I have to, and I'll help you out if needed. What do you say? Jason knew exactly what to say. There was little doubt that this was one bright spot in an otherwise bleak situation. It was as if there really was hope. Will you go on a date with me after I get out? He asked, knowing that it was the polite thing to do. My, I thought you'd never ask, she said, then started laughing. The door behind Jason swung open. A guard peeked his head in. Time's up, the guard said. Jason turned back to Allison and said, I have to go. She nodded, smiling. I know. We'll be in touch. When we have that date, I expect something fancy. You got it, Jason said as a hand grabbed him firmly by the shoulder. He was pulled out of the room and away from Allison with a large smile on his face. That's what Allison Rouse was able to do for a guy like him. She was able to bring light into an otherwise dark day. She gave him something to look forward to, something that would help him get through the days that were coming. Days that would be pure hell. And we're back. And two more chapters in. And yeah, that was another great episode. So it's time to wrap things up here, get out of here, and get you moving on to the rest of your day. So I'm just going to quickly mention twitter.com slash goingpostalpub, facebook.com slash goingpostalpublishing, Amazon. Christmas is coming. If you shop on Amazon, if you're planning to shop on, on Amazon, just go to goingpostalpublishing.com and click on the Amazon banner. Do your normal shopping. And for every dollar that you spend, I get a couple pennies on the side for 
referring you or letting you click through, whatever it is, I get to uh, get a few pennies for every dollar. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and you still get the same great stuff that you would normally get from Amazon, and I get to keep this podcast free and hopefully upgrade my equipment so that way the sound quality will be better and I'll get to do more things for you. You can email me at goingpostalpublishing at gmail.com. I've already mentioned the website, so that's going to do it for this episode. So I'll be back next week with another exciting installment of Incarceration. Same bat time, same bat channel. Hit the music! You've been listening to the Going Postal Cast. For updates about Christopher Chapman, his stories, and future podcast happenings, be sure to go to goingpostalpublishing.com. If you want to follow along on Twitter, twitter.com slash goingpostalpub, or like him at facebook.com slash goingpostalpublishing. This podcast is copyright 2012, Going Postal Publishing.